Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 90. Psalm 90, and we're going to dive right in. Psalm chapter 90, as you can see, you, you turn there, you see right before Psalm 90, you see a heading that says book four, book number four. Uh, the book of Psalms is divided into five books. They are supposed to really kind of mirror um, the five books of Moses. And Psalm 90 is the first psalm in that fourth book, as you can see. Book four, Psalm 90, boom, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. The fourth book is Psalm 90 through Psalm 106. And this book is characterized by anonymous psalms. All but Psalm 90, Psalm 101, and Psalm 103 in this book are anonymous. Um, Psalm 90 is the oldest psalm in the Psalter. Uh, it actually could be potentially the oldest piece of Scripture in the Bible. Um, this is dependent on two other old pieces of Scripture. Moses wrote Psalm 90. He also wrote the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So the question is, number one, when did he write the Pentateuch? Did he write it after all of the events happened? Did he write it as events were happening? Um, it, it seems like he wrote it after the events happened. So uh, we're going to say that Psalm 90 is before that because Psalm 90 was written, it looks like, and I'm going to try and um, argue from the scriptures that it was written right about the time of Numbers chapter 20, Numbers 14 through Numbers 20. So my guess is that Psalm 90 was written before the Pentateuch was written down. And then the only other question that we have is when the book of Job was written. And most people say that it was written before any other book of the Bible is written. I am totally fine with that. So we will say that the book of Psalms is the second oldest piece of scripture in our Bibles. It was written by Moses, as you can see in the superscription, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. The question is, when is he writing? What's the context for, what, for why he's writing what he's writing? If you drop down to verse 13, this is a familiar psalm, and for the sake of time, we're not going to read through it. We'll read through it as we go through it, but we're not going to read it uh, right up front. But if you go down to verse 13, Moses writes, Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? Whenever you see those two words, how long, you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, what is the context of what you're writing? He's stuck in a moment, and maybe we can get inside of that moment and feel with him the length of that moment and feel with him, I want this moment to be done. When is it going to be over? So what is the how long referring to? What's the setting of this psalm? There are two main options as to what the setting of the psalm is. Option number one is the Israelites living in Egypt as slaves. And how long, O oh Lord, will we be slaves in this land? Obviously, the sentiment works, but the tone of this psalm, and as we read through it, you're going to see it talks about time, it talks about death, it talks about the brevity of life. Um, so it doesn't really seem like the children of Israel in Egypt as slaves would work. The better option is the second option. It's what I believe is the context and the setting for the psalm. And that's number two. Option number two is the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. When they are wandering in the wilderness, um, Numbers chapter 14 is when they are told they are going to wander. You remember the story, right? They have traveled from Egypt all the way to Cana, all the way to Israel, to the promised land. They've traveled all the way and... Um, with about 40s day journey between them and getting into Canaan, they send spies. They send one spy from every tribe. 
and the spies go out, spy out the land, come back. Two of them have a good report. Everyone else has a bad report. Who are the names of the two that have the good report? Joshua and Caleb, right? They come back with the good report. We can totally take this city. We can totally take this land because God promised us the land. So if God promises to us, we can take it. The rest of the people are scared. They say, we should have died in Egypt. We should go back to Egypt. It's better to be slaves there than be killed here. And in Numbers 14, God is angry with their sin and tells them that they are going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Anybody remember why 40 years? God actually tells them why. One year for every day that it took for the spies to go out. So it took the spies 40 days to go out and come back and get their report. And so you didn't understand what was going on. You didn't trust in the promises of God. Um, Then I'm going to take a year for every day that they were gone and you were going to wander around in the wilderness. And then he says that everyone that is 20 years or older in age, with the exception of two people, Caleb and Joshua, are going to die without entering into the promised land. So there's a kind of a twofold curse in Numbers 14. Number one, um, you are going to wander for 40 years. And number two, you are going to die while wandering if you are 20 years or older. Um, now, just to give us some context for why this psalm fits into that setting with, an, with a very huge emphasis on death and dying. Um, In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph dies. It's about 1800 B.C., and then Genesis closes. Um, Exodus opens, Exodus chapter 1, with the birth of Moses, which is uh, 1525 B.C. So you have 275 years between Genesis closing and Exodus opening. Genesis 50 tells us that there are only 75 Israelites. There's only 75 people that can claim to be a part of this nation, quote-unquote, it's not a nation yet, it's just a people group called the Israelites. But when Exodus opens up, you have about 2.5 million Israelites. So over the course of 275 years, lots of babies are coming, and you have a move from the end of Genesis with 75 people to the beginning of Exodus with 2.5 million people. So you have about 2.5 million people wandering around in the wilderness, right? They're the ones that are let out of Egypt. They're the ones that go to search out the promised land. They're the ones that are told, uh, because of your sin, you are going to die and wander in the wilderness and die. So if 2.5 million people are wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, let's give a conservative estimate that 1.2 million of those 2.5 million people are over 20 years old, 20 years or older, are going to have to die. If you have 1.2 million people that have to die in the span of 40 years, you have to have 30,000 funerals a year, which is 2,500 funerals a month, which is over 82 funerals a day. Um, I told Tim yesterday after our, our men's uh, group together, he said, hey, what are you going to do? And I said, uh, for the rest of your day, I said, I've got to mow the lawn, and, uh, and then I have to finish my sermon. And he said, wow, it doesn't normally take you that long to finish the sermon. I said, yeah, I don't know what's going on. It's been a busy week. That's part of it. And then I realized, this is why it's taken me so long to do this sermon. There is so much math in this sermon that I keep going back and having to check my math. I've, I've been tempted to call Michelle up so many times and say, can you please check my work? So this could be totally wrong, and if it is, 
uh, please correct me later after we're done with the message. Um, that's why this is taking me so long. So you have Numbers chapter 20, 80, over 82 people that are dying every day, if you're just going to average it out. In Numbers chapter 20, Moses' sister Miriam dies. Moses sins by striking the rock, and Moses' brother Aaron dies. So you, that's just a, a snapshot of death, 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 death. Lots of death happening. And that's why I believe, as we're going to read through this psalm, this psalm fits in very well to Numbers 14 and Numbers 20, with wandering around in the wilderness, with dying, with death. Now you might say, okay, that's great, but that is a lot of morbid, macabre ideas here. We don't want to be thinking about dying, and we don't want to be thinking about death. Um, I would say... It can be morbid for sure. That's our end. Everybody dies. 100% of people die. But Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verses 2 through 4 would tell us that it's wise to think about death. Ecclesiastes 7 verses 2 through 4 says, It's better to go to a house of mourning, that's a funeral, than to go to a house of feasting, that's a, um, a wedding. Why? Because that is the end of every man, and the living take it to heart. So we would do well this morning to think about death, to think about our deathbed, to think about when we are going to die, because that is the end of every man. Jonathan Edwards used to say, go into the bedroom of the dying, sit beside their deathbed, and listen to what their last words are. He says as a pastor, he would sit beside people on their deathbed, and some of the phrases would be, quote, oh, for a thousand worlds for an inch of time, oh, if only I had time again to live my life. What are the last words of somebody on their deathbed? Is it, oh, I wish I had more money, or I wish I had more toys, or I wish I had more... No, it's, I wish I had more time. And I don't think that there is anything that I desire more as a pastor than for you to be able to die well. Um, I want to prepare your souls for dying with contentment. Because if you can die with contentment in Jesus Christ then that means you have lived wisely with contentment in Jesus Christ. And if you live wisely with satisfaction and contentment in Jesus Christ, you are not wasting your life and you're living the best life you possibly could live. That's why I want us this morning to be guided in this psalm, um, in the words of, of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, be careful how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise people, making the most of your time because the days are evil. The days are evil before us, and so more than ever, we need to make sure we are walking wisely. There's only two ways to live, unwisely or wisely. And I believe that this psalm helps us with living wisely. The theme of this psalm is really in verse 12. It's kind of the crux of the whole psalm. It's a psalm that many of you probably know. It's a passage many of you probably know by heart. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. That's the theme of this passage, to number our days to present before God a heart of wisdom. Numbering our days is just to understand and evaluate the brevity of our own life and to invest the time that we have in light of eternity. And so this morning we will be led by Moses through Psalm 90 with three points that will help us to gain a heart of wisdom. And he clearly goes through three aspects of living life that will help us gain a heart of wisdom. Number one, Number one, if you were to walk wisely, numbering your days and having a heart of wisdom, you need to, number one, be humbled by God's eternality and your brevity. Be humbled by God's eternality and be humbled by your own 
brevity. This is verses 1 through 6. Be humbled by God's eternality and be humbled by your own brevity. Let's look at God's eternality. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. If you drop down to verse 4, there's a little bit in there as well. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. God is outside of time. God has been the dwelling place for all eternity for these people. God, you've been our rock, our refuge, our dwelling place. Um, it's interesting that the opening of the psalm, one, one commentator says, the opening of the psalm corresponds to the close in that God is seen in the opening as our dwelling place, as our God, whose eternity is the answer, not simply the antithesis to our homelessness and our brevity of life. Some people like to say, okay, God's eternal and we are not, and those are opposite and they they work against each other. And there's an aspect where they are completely opposite, obviously. But the answer to the problem of our brevity is God's eternality. That's kind of the, the question and the answer together. And so that's why Moses starts by saying, you've been our dwelling place. And at the end, he says, you're the only one that can give permanence to our work, to our hands, to our lives. We find our purpose and eternality in God and not in what we do. Lord, you've been our dwelling place. He starts by calling God Adonai, Master. Uh, You have been our dwelling place. Whenever you see Lord in all capital letters, that's Yahweh. Um, That's God's personal name, like Patrick. It's personal name. Whenever you see Lord, capital L and then um, lowercase o-r-d, that's Adonai, which just means master, somebody who owns you. And so Moses says, you are my God, you own me. And then he specifically points to the fact that God is eternal. God is outside of time. Before anything existed, God existed. Here's a question for you. What seems like a long time to you? What seems like a long time? Um, maybe a, a really hot day, maybe a really hot night. Last night it was so hot in our house that you're just, I'm, I'm, I'm laying there just dripping sweat, praying, God, give me sleep, please. And it just seems like the seconds are just going by so slowly. Maybe that's how you feel right now. Maybe church feels long to you. I was thinking about, I went to a wedding one time. You know when you go to weddings and they have like the dance where you do the, the anniversary dance and you get up and everybody's dancing and they say, okay, if you've been married for five years or less, um, sit down. Uh, if you've been married for 10 years or less, sit down. And they go through that. And I went to a wedding one time where there was a couple, the last couple, they just go 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. And when they got to 60, the announcer, you could hear him say like, there's more than 60? Like how? There was a couple that had been married for 72 years. I don't even understand the math on that. Like I was trying to, 70, how, what is happening? Found out that they were both over the age of 100. So they're dancing, um, more just not, try not to fall. And, <laughs> and it's just gorgeous, right? I look at that and I think 72 years of marriage. There's no way I'm going to live that long. 72 years of marriage. That seems like forever to me. But to God, that's just a blink, To God, that's just him blinking, 72 years. You think about Jesus being on the earth for uh, over 2,000 years ago. In God's mind, when Jesus was on the earth to today is just like a sneeze. It's just boom. That's 
God, God was there. God is there. God is outside of time. God sees it all. So however long you think long is, however long you think a lengthy amount of time is, uh, God's been alive longer than that. And this should really make us more cautious. Even this last week when we might say and think, God, what are you doing? Do you know what you're doing? Do you have a plan? It should make us a little bit more cautious when we know he's eternal to, to question what he's doing. If he's outside of time and he's looking at time and he's working in time, we should just say, okay, I know you've got this. You have the plan. He knows what he's doing. He sees it all. Sometimes I think that we are to God what little kids are to parents when they're you know, driving across the country and they just say, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? God, is your plan done yet? Are you finished yet? Has it been accomplished yet? Are you done? And what do we want as parents with those kids? We want to say, could you please, like we've been in the car for seven minutes and you're already asking, are we there yet? And we have a seven hour drive in front of us. Would you please have the concept of adult time in your mind right now? That's what we're wanting, right? And we're trying, we kind of even put it in, in their terminology. We're, we're going to be driving for four Sesame Streets and, and, and seven Mr. Rogers. And, and, and I think somebody who, whoever thought of that finally went, well, let's just show them a Mr. Rogers. And they put the DVD in the, in the vans and now you can just see it. But the bottom line is, as we are saying, please have an adult concept of time, it's only seven hours. I know it's long, but it's not that long. We'll be there when we get there. I think there's a very real aspect where God is outside of time saying, guys, we're not there yet, but I promise you, we'll get there. I have a plan and I promise it will happen. God is eternal. Man, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. We are brief. Verse 3. God, you turn man back into dust and you say, return, O children of men. A thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. So a thousand years are like a day, verse 4. But even less than that, they're like a watch in the night, which a a night watch back then was a four-hour period of time. So a thousand years are like a day. A thousand years are also like a night watch, which is four hours long. So 24 hours and four hours. It's just very brief. And then he says, you have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass, which sprouts anew. And in the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, though, it fades, and in the end, it withers away. Charles Spurgeon says, here is the history of grass. Sown, grown, blown, mown, gone. And the history of man is not much more. That's the reality of our lives. We're here for a moment. We're gone. We sang that. We are a moment. You are eternal. We're a vapor. Now turn to Psalm 39. Psalm 39. This is a psalm of David. And he says pretty much the same thing. He says, I want to know what the end is going to look like. I don't want to, like we normally do in our society, we just push away the idea of death. We don't want to think about it. We know it's coming, but we don't want to think about it. Um, even though Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that everybody knows that something's going to happen when they die. Everybody knows they're going to die and something's going to happen after they die. We don't like to think about it. We don't want to. But David says, I want to be wise. So Psalm 39, verse 4. Lord, this is a prayer, and you can see Lord in all caps. That's Yahweh. Yahweh, make me to know my end. Not, not how I'm going to die, but that I'm going to die. And that it's going to come quicker than I think. 
Help me know what the extent of my days is. Not, not again, that I have, you know, 5,483 more days, but just the fact that my days are short. And he's going to say that. Let me know how transient I am. I'm here for a moment, and then I'm gone. Behold, you have made my days as hand breadths. Um, you remember the, the cubit measurement was the forearm measurement in uh, the Old Testament. We see a cubit uh, is the forearm. This is kind of the measurement of, of a cubit. He says, you can't even measure my life as a cubit. You have to do a hand breath, just, just right here. It's so small. It's the smallest measurement that we can come up with in Old Testament, you know, Israel and culture and um, Hebrew times. He says, I'm, I'm not a cubit. I'm a hand breath. I'm tiny. My lifetime is as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Every, every man at his best is a mere breath. We walk around, he says in verse 6, like phantoms. We are alive for just a moment. What is this moment that we are alive for? Um, the, the average age span in America, the average lifetime in America right now is 78 years. Uh, you live for an average uh, of 78 years. Um, uh, that's just in days, that's over 28,000 days. See, here we go again with the math. I could be totally wrong. That's just over 28,000 days. So let's think about the brevity of your life, okay? Let's think about how fast your life goes by. By the time you've graduated high school, maybe a little bit after that, about 19, you've already spent 7,000 days, uh, which is a quarter, right? A quarter of 28,000. You think about a football game, you think about split up into quarters. If you turn on the football game and it's the second quarter and you see that the score is 14 to 10, you're wondering, I missed something. I wonder what happened. You have to watch the replays. You have to figure out, how did this go down? A quarter is a pretty fast amount of time to go by. It's a lengthy amount of time, but now it's gone. By the time you've finished high school and are going into college, you're about a quarter of the way through. When you turn 39... The marching band's on the field. It's halftime. Um, you're, you're halfway there. When you turn 58 and a half, you are into the fourth quarter of your game. And, and whenever you get to the fourth quarter of your game in football, whatever you need to do needs to be done, right? Now you have urgency. You have 15 minutes left of game time. And now if, if we're not making something happen, we pull out all the stops and we make it happen. The two-minute warning of your football game of life is in your 70s. The reality is we don't have as much time as we think we do. It goes by way faster than we would think. Few of us realize how influenced we are by how we think about time. We all think about time. The question is, how do you think about time? Most of us think we have more time. And so the psalmist says, be careful how you think about your time. Your time is brief. It's going by very quickly. And before you know it, it will be gone. This is why we need to hear Moses. We need to hear David in Psalm 39. And we need to reprioritize our lives around that reality. Before we know it, we're going to be gone. Three passages. I'm just going to give these to you. Luke 12, Matthew 6, and 1 Timothy 6. Luke 12, Matthew 6, 1 Timothy 6. You know these passages. We don't have time to turn there. Uh, Luke 12, 
Jesus is giving an example of somebody who's wasting their life, and he says that there is a man who stores up for himself in the barns and the storehouses, and then um, he dies, his soul is uh, accountable before God, and Jesus says that man is a fool because he didn't realize that on this night his soul was going to be taken away. You fool. And then he says, uh, Jesus says at the end of this, so instead of being rich towards yourselves and, and, and storing these up for yourselves, be rich toward God. Don't be rich toward yourselves. Be rich towards God. Matthew 6 is in the same vein. You know it. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Moth and rust destroy them. Thieves break in and steal. They're going to be gone. And when you die, you can't have a U-Haul with all of your stuff behind your hearse taking it with you as you go into eternity. You can't take it with you. So what are we supposed to do? Store up for yourselves treasure that is in heaven because you can't take all the things that you have with you. So what do we do? Matthew 6 tells us, so seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first his righteousness. Don't seek first your own gains. 1 Timothy 6 kind of says the same thing. The brevity of life will make us rethink money, rethink our love for it. So instead we need to maximize each day for Christ. Jonathan Edwards did this as a young kid. He said um, one of the first resolutions that he penned for his own life, um, resolution number nine, he said, I resolve to think much on all occasions in my life of my own dying. I want to think a lot about my own death. Now, again, we say, well, that's really depressing. It might be, but it's really productive. It's very productive if you think about your death. James chapter 4, verse 13, another verse you can write down, you know it. Um, those four words, if the Lord wills, don't be so proud that you plan your life apart from God. That's the whole point. It's not that those four words are just like magic words that you have to say no matter what. Um, it's not like, hey, do you want to go watch a movie with me afterwards? If the Lord wills, like that's not what it is. The idea is you have to orient your plans around God. Orient everything that you're doing around the fact that God has a plan. I want to be a part of his plan. This is exactly what we talked about last week with Psalm 127. We need to pray, orient our lives around God, and then work. And when God has a direction and when he has a purpose, we pray and then we work towards that purpose. God gives in Acts 17, Paul says that God gives life and breath and everything else. We need to plan with God in mind because he gives everything for us to do. So be humbled by God's eternality and your own brevity. That's point number one. If you do that, you will begin to gain a heart of wisdom. Point number two, meditate on the gravity of sin and its consequences. Meditate on the gravity of sin and its consequences. If we are going to live with wisdom before God, we need to be humbled by God's eternality and be humbled by our own brevity. And then number two, we need to meditate on the gravity of our sin and its consequences. This is in verses 7 through 12. Moses writes, because for, so he says all these things about our brevity of life, and then he says, why, why am I talking about that? I'm talking about how fast life goes by, because we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence, for all of our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. 
Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So, because of your fury, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. What is he saying here? Um, He starts by saying in verse 7, We have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. That's what my Bible says, and that is a beautiful uh, picture of what the Hebrew actually says. It's almost a word-for-word order. The word order is perfectly intact from what the Hebrew is. You say, well, who cares? Um, This is why it's really, really cool. Uh, You know what a a chiastic structure is? Um, A, B, B, A. Um, it moves from a point, uh, it moves from two points into the middle. So you have two parallel ideas, the A's, start and finish with that. And then you have two parallel ideas in the middle, the B's. And that is the crux. That's the emphasis. So what's the emphasis of verse 7? We have been consumed, there's A, consumed by your anger and by your wrath. So B and B are anger and wrath. We have been dismayed or terrified we've been consumed and terrified those are the a's we've been consumed and we've been terrified by the b's your anger and your wrath so what is the emphasis of this section in this psalm it's the wrath of god it is god's wrath and then obviously you can see it he goes on to say our iniquities are before you and your fury is being poured out verse 9 and then he says this verse in verse 10 that we know the days of our life, they contain 70 years. If due to strength, 80 years. And we read that and we say, yeah, well, Moses is a good prophet because our average lifespan is 78 years. So we fit right in there. Great job, Moses. That's not what Moses is saying. Moses isn't saying our days are going to be 70 to 80 years. What is Moses saying? We have to go all the way back to Genesis 5. The chapter right before the flood, old, old, old people exist. The average lifespan before Genesis 6 is 950 years old. You are living a long, long time. I've always wondered before Genesis 6, if you live, a, if you live 950 years, when, when is puberty in that mix? I've always wondered that. Then, Genesis chapter 6, verse, uh, chapter 6 through 9, the flood happens. There's a cataclysmic catastrophe, destroys the atmosphere, destroys a lot of things on earth. The atmosphere is so radically changed that right after the flood, without any explanation whatsoever, people are not living as long. It's more around 300. It's actually, for a couple chapters, the average is 317 years of life. So we went from 950 to 317 years. Go to Abraham. About 2000 BC, Abraham died when he was 175 years old. Isaac died when he was 180 years old. These are right around 2000 BC, 175, 180. And both are said to have had long days or many days in their years. They lived a long life. That's the whole point. They lived a long life, 175, 180 in 2000 BC. Moses and Joshua in 1500 BC, so we've moved 500 years. Moses died at 120 and Joshua died at 110 so we've moved from 175, to one, uh, 175 and 180, 500 years later, to 120 and 110. And again, we are told they lived a long time. Uh, many years in their life. The days of their years were full. Fast forward 500 more years. To David, around 1000 BC, he dies at 71 years of age. And these were, again, 
full of years, days that were filled or years that were filled with days. So there's a decline, 175 years old, 120, 71. So about the time of Moses and Joshua, the average lifespan is around 120. People are, are living to about 120 years old. Why do I say this? Because Moses is saying our life expectancy, even though it is 120 years old, now that we're wandering in the wilderness, it is 70 years old, or maybe if we're strong enough, 80 years old. In our context, if we live to be 78 years old, if that's the average, that would be like me saying our life expectancy is 30, and if we have strength, 35. What's taking place here? Well, go back again to we have, have 1.2 million people that are wandering around in the desert and they have to die within 40 years. So if they have to die, we have people between 20 years of age and 120 years of age that all need to be killed off. So if you average that out, you have 70-year-old people. That's about the time that they're going to die. Uh, the average of 20 and 120, you get right around 70. So if you've got 120-year-old people that are dying, 20-year-old people that are dying, it would be like for us in our context, doing a funeral one day for somebody who is 30, one day for somebody who is 18, one day for somebody who is 50. You average it out, and Moses is saying, because of our sin and the punishment against our sin, you're cutting our life short. That's what he's saying. Our life is being cut short. We're supposed to be living to 120 But because of our sin and your fury against our sin, we are dying at the age of 70 and maybe, if we're lucky, 80. And you say, well, that's great, and I know it was all because of their sin, but that's the Old Testament. We don't deal with that anymore. We have Jesus. He's a loving, gracious God. He would never do that. Just write down 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29. Paul says that people are dying because they are taking of communion in an unworthy manner. That's why we try to establish a sense of sobriety before we take communion together as a church. If you do not take communion with a right heart before God, Paul says you are going to drink judgment upon yourself. And some people, because they were going to take communion, it was a feast back then. It was Passover, Seder, feast kind of a thing. Some people were going just to get drunk. Hey, this is the point where the preacher says... The, the, the cup is the blood of Jesus Christ. This is great. Pass it around. Let me drink some more. And people were getting drunk, and God struck them down. If you go to chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul sets the stage by saying, this happened to the Israelites as an example to you, and you're not understanding the example. Um, because you're dying too. Ananias and Sapphira died. Um, there are so many people in the New Testament that die in the exact same form and same type of way that uh, people in the Old Testament did. You sin, you are judged. In the Old Testament, in Numbers 14 through 20, um, actually in the whole book of Numbers and, and beyond, there are 10 episodes in the wilderness wanderings where the people are complaining. And that's their sin. You say, well, they must have been doing something terrible. They were complaining. That was their sin. And they aren't even complaining that they don't have water. It's they're complaining that... The water that they have is not the water that they want, want, that they like. Um, They aren't complaining that they don't have food. You guys remember, they have food every day. They have have quail, they have meat, uh, they have manna. I mean, every morning they wake up, English muffins on the lawn, nooks and crannies and all, and they're saying, I don't like these anymore. They don't like their leaders. 
Um, Moses is a bad leader. I don't like where you're leading. I don't like how you're leading. I don't like why you're leading. I think I could do a better job than you. And God says, I'm going to destroy you. What Moses is saying in verses 7 through 12, especially, I mean, drop down to verse 11. Who understands the power of your anger? I, I did not understand how powerful your anger was. And so I took it lightly. So I sinned and thought, well, there'll be grace. It's okay. It doesn't matter. God will be gracious with me. We should fear God. And if we fear God, verse 12 will happen. We will number our days. We will present to God a heart of wisdom because we know it'll be um, like tomorrow. It'll feel like tomorrow that we stand before God in judgment. Our, our lives are going to go by. But before we know it, we're going to be in eternity standing before God. So Moses says, please teach us to number our days in light of the gravity of my sin and the consequences that my sin brings. If you are to have a heart of wisdom, number one, you have to be humbled by God's eternality and by your own brevity. Number two, you need to meditate on the gravity of sin and its consequences. And number three, you must seek God alone for temporal and eternal salvation. Seek God alone for temporal and eternal salvation. This is in verses 13 through 17. Seek God alone for your temporal salvation, for God saving you from the consequences of your sin, and for your eternal salvation, God saving you ultimately from the penalty due your sin. The psalm ends with um, Adonai. You can see in verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Um, Verse 13, though, Moses starts the section by saying, please return to me, Yahweh, my personal God, the God that I love and the God that I know loves me. Return. That's literally the word repent. Um, Repentance is doing a 180 degree turn and turning back to something, from something to something. So what is Moses saying? God, you have turned your back on us and are moving away from us. So repent, turn. Not that God has to repent of sin. It's turn from turning your back on us and turn your face to us and come back to us. How long will it be? Maybe it's year 39 and there are 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And Moses says, how long is it going to be? The reality is, I don't know about you, for me, I can endure almost anything if I know the ending, if I know the cutoff, if I know, you know what, this is going to stink for a while, but I know there's going to be an end time and I'll be done. Moses doesn't know the end time. He's struggling. I don't know how long it's been. How long do we have left to go? Please. I want your presence. Be sorry for your servants. And until you return, we aren't going to be satisfied in our circumstances. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. We're dying here, but now if you would return to us and satisfy us, not with years of life, not with other things that we're asking for, but with you, if you are our satisfaction, then we can sing for joy. Then we can be glad all of our days. Make us glad according to the days that you've afflicted us. That's so similar to um, Psalm 51 language. We're probably going to get to Psalm 51 later, and Psalm 51 is really just kind of an exposition of this feeling in uh, verses 13 through 17. The psalmist says, Let the bones that you have broken be healed. You heal those bones. You have given us consequences for our sins, and now I'm praying that you would come and take those consequences away. Remove those consequences as we turn to you 
please remove those consequences. Make us glad in the years that we have seen evil. Make us glad. Verse 16, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let's see your majesty again. Let's see your glory again and not just your fury and your wrath. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. That word confirm is literally the word um, bring permanence, give permanence. We all, we're fleeting. (coughs) We don't know how much longer we have to live. Um, We are all going to be gone before we know it. But you, O God, can give us the permanence and the eternality that we're looking for. If we trust in you, if we're satisfied in you, the only way that we can find our satisfaction in God and the only way that we can live with permanence in this life is if we live with Jesus Christ as our treasure, as our highest and most supreme goal, affection, and adoration. So Moses says, please, you need to do the work in our lives to give our lives purpose and meaning. If we try to give ourselves purpose and meaning, nothing's going to happen. But if you give me purpose and meaning, God, you will give me something to live for, something to work for, something to strive for. So the implications of this psalm are very clear. If we live out these three points, being humbled by God's eternality, being humbled by your own brevity, meditating on the gravity of your sin and its consequences, and seeking God alone for your temporal salvation from consequences, and eternal salvation in the life to come. You will live for the glory of God and not spend time on meaningless things. That's why Jonathan Edwards says, Oh, stamp eternity on my eyeballs, O God. I want to know, I want to see with an eternal perspective. So just by way of conclusion, two things. If we're going to apply these truths to our lives today, I see two things that we must do. Number one, we must live with an eternal perspective. If we're going to live these truths out, That means living with an eternal perspective, having glasses that we see through and the glasses, the lenses are eternity. Everything we see, is this profiting me for eternity? Is this profitable for eternity? Is this helping anybody else for eternity? Or is this just for the here and now? Only what is done for Christ will last. That's why Jonathan Edwards wrote all of these resolutions that he wrote. Um, Resolution number five, resolve never to lose one moment of time but improve it the most profitable way that I can. I don't want to lose a moment of time. It's like a coin. I don't want to just give away money frivolously. It's time. Job 15, I'm sorry, 14 verse 5. Since man's days are determined, the number of his months is with you, O God, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. God has numbered and determined our days. Psalm 139 verse 16. In your book, were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. God has numbered our days, so we should number ours as well. Resolution number seven, resolve never to do anything that I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. If you think, okay, I'm going to see Jesus tonight, I think this afternoon and this evening would change. Your priorities would be different. Resolution number 50, resolve I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. Resolution number 52, resolved. I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. I'm going to resolve now that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to an old age. I don't want to look back on, at the end of my life and say, oh, I wish I had done things differently. 
Let's do it now. So we must live with an eternal perspective. And number two, if we're to apply this, we must be satisfied by Christ alone. That's the only way we are given permanence at the end of verse 17. And that's why Moses says in verse 14, satisfy me in the morning with you, with your loving kindness, that I would sing for joy. But the reality is, the only way that that prayer, satisfy me, O God, with who you are, the only way that that prayer could ever be answered by God as a yes, I can do that for you, is if Jesus would take our place. Um, We, as it were, are supposed to wander in the wilderness of God's wrath and fury, not for 40 years, but for all of eternity. And Jesus willingly said, I will go into that wilderness. I will experience that wilderness so that you never have to experience that. Look back at verse 13. Do return, O Lord. You've turned your back on us, and we want you to turn around and come back. Let your face shine on us. We want your presence. Brothers and sisters, we never have to fear God turning his back on us because Jesus had God turn his back on him on the cross. We will never be abandoned because Jesus was abandoned in our place. Jesus endured the wrath of God on the cross, crying out, why have you forsaken me so that we would never be forsaken? Jesus, I'm sure on the cross, probably thought these thoughts, how long, O Lord, is this going to last? How much longer do I have to experience the wrath of God? And he experienced it for you and for me so that we would never have to ask God how long about anything. We have been given grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ And if we understand that grace rightly, we will be satisfied by who he is. And that will be all of our delight, all of our joy, all of our adoration forever and ever. So brothers and sisters, I I just ask you, are you in Christ? Have you repented of your sins, the very thing that Christ died to free you from? Do you know that if you were to stand before God this night and he were to hypothetically ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? If you answer, well, I'm trying my hardest. I'm really working hard. He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. If you say, well, I've done a lot of bad things, but I'm doing a lot of good things now. He's going to say, once you break one area of the law, you're breaking the whole law. You're guilty of everything. If you are not perfect, you cannot stand in God's presence. And he'll say, depart from me. The only way that we can stand in God's presence and be satisfied by him for all of eternity is, is if we are wearing the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If we say before God, I don't deserve to be in heaven, but I am throwing myself at the mercy of Jesus who stood in my place, condemned for my sins, and I take his perfect life to myself. By faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, I'm turning to him and trusting in him. That's the only way that we can stand before God and be satisfied by him all the days of our lives. This psalm is about numbering our days, and Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, loved this psalm so much that he wrote a hymn straight from the text. Oh God, our help in ages past. It actually has nine verses. We're only going to sing a couple of them, but I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing a a hymn that comes straight from this, this chapter. And as we sing it, let's make it a prayer of our hearts that God would help us to number our days so that we'd be satisfied in him alone. God, we thank you so much for your love for sending Jesus Christ, our propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, the one who covers us even now. You are our help, not only in ages past, but our hope for years to come. 
You are the shelter from the stormy blast of God's wrath, and you are our eternal home. So we sit under the shadow of your wings, and we rest in the finished work of Jesus even now. We pray it all in his name for his glory. Amen.